so when did you know that you wanted to become a pastor? Well, see, that's a complicated question. <laughs> Depends on which time you're talking about. <laughs> okay. Well, how many times were there? Uh, I was uh, junior or senior in high school when I had very, very strong sense of calling to ministry, and I knew that's what I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to work somehow in ministry and helping people to know God. And I knew that in college, I wanted to learn how to study the Bible better, and I wanted to learn more about my faith and how to share it. Were you a Bible nerd in high school? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I was the quintessential Bible nerd. How many school. verses did you have memorized? <laughs> I don't know, but I know I was really proud of it. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> I started, um, so I went to a Christian high school, but it was kind of like a Christian high school where being into God was really not cool. <laughs> so everyone at this Christian high school was like the punk rock version. It was, well, it was the 90s, so. <laughs> yeah, fair. <laughs> not, not a good time for happiness, the 90s. <laughs> was it one of those situations where when kids are bad, their parents send them to this Christian school to like straighten them out? <laughs> Um, there were definitely, there was definitely some of that going on, but it was, it was a Seventh-day Adventist school. Okay. And so it's kind of a thing in the church where, where you send the kids, your, your kids to like Adventist education. It's, it's, it's kind of like being Catholic in that sense that the education system is really integral and, and really important for a lot of people, but that didn't mean that kids necessarily wanted to be there. And there, I, I don't know. It was just the vibe at the time. It was just not, um, it was just like not a very spiritual place, oddly enough. But I was determined to be the difference. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I was just so passionate about God and about faith after I had this experience early my junior year of a deep knowledge of the love of God that transformed me like, like it was this very instant transformation mm -hmm. of who I was and how I thought about myself and how I moved through the world. And I was just in love with God and, and it just clicked for me in a way that it never had before. So you weren't necessarily thinking, Oh, I'm going to become a pastor, but just doing something in ministry, serving God somehow that was the end game. It was very vague for me through a lot of college, what that was going to look like, probably because I didn't know any female pastors. I mean, I even remember from the time I was a kid thinking about what do I want to do when I grow up? And I remember wondering, like, are women allowed to, like, preach? You know, are they mm -hmm. allowed to be pastors? And there was maybe, like, one or two women who preached a message. Maybe it was, like, a doctor who talked about health or something, which is also really big in the Adventist church. And, and so there were, like, maybe some – or education or something, but not, like, pastors and i didn't know any female pastors for a really long time yeah so it's probably really hard to envision yourself in the pulpit when you don't have any examples yeah and then in college it's really hard to envision yourself getting a job when no women are <laughs> you know those realities start to sink in and um you know unbelievably idealistic like a lot of folks are and just having these grand visions of all these ministries and things I want to do and, and not really being sure. And, but then I made the decision to go into psychology and, um, there were several reasons for that. Like the reasons for that were really layered. 
some of it was just plain chickening out because I didn't know if I was going to get a job and wanting a life that I could envision working <laughs> for myself. Um, another was just that I had a lot of doubts and questions about faith still. So I went to study psychology. The original plan was to be a psychologist. And I had this dramatic kind of reconversion experience after after that and just really um, kind of an experience of losing and then regaining faith. And as my faith rebuilt itself kind of from the ground up, actually, I – was re rekindled in that sense of wanting to be in ministry in that sense of calling. And the closer I got to God and the more my faith just rebuilt itself and God rebuilt my faith, the more I just knew I was supposed to be in ministry. And it just got to a breaking point where I decided that that was what I was going to pursue and I decided that the way of doing that was to go back to seminary. So I worked as a counselor to pay off some student loans because stacking student loans is not a good idea. And then so responsible. <laughs> yeah. So then I um, kind of financially prepared and then found myself in seminary. And it was insane because one week I was sitting with drug addicted teenagers talking about like their heroin and meth problems. And then the next week I was sitting in seminary chapel and it was beautiful and everyone was well-dressed and everyone was talking about how much they love the Lord and people were complaining about the school not being spiritual enough. And it was just like this whiplash experience. <laughs> that is quite a contrast. It, it was, it was crazy. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really crazy. I just, I had my head in one space and here I was in a different space. And I spent as much time as I could in um, biblical studies classes. So the biblical studies departments, New Testament, Old Testament, uh, they're downstairs at the seminary I went to. And so we would call it the catacombs. <laughs> so I spent a lot of time in the catacombs and studying as much as I could. I was able to get into this class on the Old Testament law. Mm -hmm. It was probably one of my two favorite classes the whole time I was at seminary. The other was a class on the Book of Romans. So this was an Old Testament law class, and I had to petition specially to get into the class, basically because he was trying to make sure that everybody in the class was really serious about it. So it ended up in a small room, all of us seated around the table, just you know, a handful of people, just a few students seated around a table with this professor who is brilliant and passionate and compassionate, just, just an amazing person. And he was teaching the class and we took a really, really deep dive into the Old Testament law, the Torah. We asked all the really hard questions. So like what kind of questions? Like, why does this text say that God commanded the nation of Israel to commit genocide against the Canaanites? Why did he command them with their own hands to kill women and children? How do we reconcile this with our high view of scripture? What about slavery in the Old Testament and the New Testament? But it was more focused on the Old Testament in that particular class. But what about slavery? What about the uh, treatment of women as if they weren't like legally independent humans? Things like things like that. Yeah, 
we really ask those questions. Like those are the things that so many Christians grapple with or ignore one of the two, because those are tough texts to try and understand. Yeah, just from the perspective of having been a pastor and doing Bible studies with people, there's so much in the Bible that's hard to understand. And a lot of times you just take things and you say, well, I'm not going to understand all of it. Sure. So uh, you kind of you kind of um, book, bookmark some things and think, well, maybe I'll eventually get around to that. Maybe I'll never get around to that. You focus on the parts of the faith that are more transformative, more important, the kinds of things that made us Christian in the first place. Right. Like, let's just talk about the love of Jesus. Right. Nobody is Christian because of the verses about genocide. <laughs> uh, and if they are, that's really scary. <laughs> I think maybe they should reconsider. Please find another faith. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah. So those those questions in those texts don't really get looked at. Nobody uses them in their evangelism series. So... But the, I've always been the kind of person that asked those questions and that wrestled with those texts. Like I've always been that kind of person. And really in those classes, we learned so much about how the authority of scripture can be preserved while still wrestling with the realities of these very difficult texts. There is so much nuance in the Bible. There's so much nuance in how things were said and why things were said in the backstory about why things were said. There was, though, there was a seed of something that agitated me that kind of stuck in my brain in a really uncomfortable way for a long time after that class. I knew it was because of that class, but it took me a while to unpack why. And the reason why was because we asked all of the hard questions and we wrestled with them and we came up with amazing insight into scripture around them. But the way that we wrestled with them, we were wrestling with the questions, but never with the answers. It wasn't stated, but the answers were already predetermined. Right. Like no one in that class was ever going to be like, actually, I think genocide is okay and God ordains it. Exactly. Nobody was going to say, well, it does actually appear that the Bible supports slavery. And so maybe we should be doing that. We were, we were trying to reconcile how do we get our ethics from scripture when in reality we know that there's some parts of scripture that no matter what it said, we wouldn't believe that that was okay. Can you imagine people today just setting up an honest debate and being like, actually, we're not so sure about this slavery thing. We need to go back to the Bible. We're going to have arguments from both sides here. Like, that's just not a conversation that would ever happen. Right. We don't go say, let's go look at the Bible to see what our ethics is on slavery. But and this is really uncomfortable. And so this is why we don't say it. But for oh, at least 1600 years of church history, that was the majority position. Yeah. And even in, in our own country, you go back 150 and 200 years, like this was not a clear cut issue. I'm being for, really for... generous saying 1600 years. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's more like 17 or 18. <laughs> they were having substantive debates in this country about 
whether we should allow slavery or not. And there were people, like a good number of Christians, saying that to free the slaves would be to undermine the entire authority of Scripture and saying that like the whole church would fall apart if we did this. That was a real conversation we were having in this country. That was one of the most common arguments in support of continuing the system of slavery was that we will undermine the entire foundation of Scripture. Now, we can set that debate to the side for a moment because I'm I'm sure that there's lots of things that maybe are popping into our listeners' heads about why they were wrong scripturally on that. But the main point is that we today have not gotten our ethics of scripture from doing a really careful Bible study to make sure it's what the Bible says. And I actually believe that ultimately that is biblical. And here's why. Because Jesus said that the most important concepts of scripture are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And he said that on this hangs all the law and the prophets, which is just to say all of the Bible. So it's actually a scriptural thing to say slavery is inhumane and evil and morally evil because of what it does to people. And the abolitionists, the people like William Wilberforce or for the Adventist church people like Ellen White, were making arguments that were rooted in the dignity of all people and the golden rule and the principle of love. That's what they were. That's what their arguments were based on. They never went through systematically the texts that talk about slavery and enslaving people and dismantled them. It was all about those broader concepts. So I actually think it's biblical to say um, – you know, that we're not going to consider maybe slavery is okay, maybe genocide is okay. Like, I actually think that that's biblical because of these broader things in scripture. And conservatives already believe that and right. believe that for a really, really, really long time. And so I think what ultimately was kind of the sticking point for me about that class is that there wasn't an acknowledgement of any of this. Mm. It was like, we're just going to interpret the law in this dramatically technical sense with this kind of unspoken rule that we have a predetermined outcome that we're going to come to on these topics, but we're going to have this very nuanced conversation about how to come to that conclusion with scripture. And we're going to look at, you know, the movement of scripture and the redemptive movement of scripture and William Webb, and these names might mean something to some of you guys, but ultimately we're going to come to this conclusion. And then we look at the topic of homosexuality, mm -hmm. and there's no nuance. There is not a drop of nuance. It's all just, this is what the Bible says, and it's really clear. And it was a no in every situation, so it's always going to be a no in every situation. Even if a new situation or understanding arises, it's always going to be a no henceforth and forever because that's what the Bible says. Welcome to Open Bible Podcast, everybody. If you're a Christian and you don't think people should own other people or that women and children shouldn't be slaughtered wholesale no matter what, Guess what? You already have a nuanced view of the Bible. And there's no reason we can't use a conservative, nuanced lens to examine the topic of same-sex relationships. On this episode, Alicia talks to Karen Keene, and y'all, this conversation is incredible. 
If you are at all interested in understanding what we do with a book like Leviticus and all its commands, if you've ever wondered what Christians should follow in it and why, this is going to blow your mind. Karen Keene has three master's degrees in biblical studies, exegetical theology, and education, and is the author of the outstanding book Scripture, Ethics, and the Possibility of Same-Sex Relationships. We start this conversation talking about something called the deliberative process. What is the deliberative process? Okay, so imagine this. A car flies by a cop going 20 miles per hour over the speed limit. The cop turns her lights on and pulls him over. My question to you is this. What should she do? Give him a ticket? Arrest him? The letter of the law states that he should be given a ticket, and at least where I live, she has the right to make an arrest. So, does it change your answer if I tell you his pregnant wife is with him, on the verge of giving birth, and they're on their way to the hospital? Does it change your answer if he's drunk and driving through a school zone? Does it change your answer if there's another guy in the back seat holding a gun to his head? <laughs> you get the point. We all hope that the way the law is applied isn't fixed in stone. Even though a society needs rules to function, we all understand that there are circumstances where in order to do the right thing, sometimes laws must be broken. And sometimes we reach a point where we have to modify or abolish laws that violate our moral principles, like the slavery laws in the United States we were talking about earlier. What's amazing is you see the same thing happening within the pages of the Bible itself, with authors modifying previously given commands, and we see Jesus himself doing it repeatedly, applying fresh context and information in how he handles biblical law, what they referred to as the Torah. This is called the deliberative process. When it comes to same-sex relationships, sometimes you'll hear Christians say something to the effect of, Here it is, Leviticus 18.22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Your argument isn't with me, it's with God. Now, when they say that, what I hear is someone trying to shut the conversation down. I'm right, you're wrong, the end. The problem is that isn't how the Hebrew people, including Jesus, approached the law in the Old Testament. Jesus saw the law as a conversation starter, not a conversation ender. And we should too. So let's start the conversation. A quick note before we dive in. This interview at times gets a little technical, and depending on how familiar you are with the Bible, there may be a moment or two where you feel a little lost. But don't let that scare you off from listening. I know from the feedback we've been getting that we have a really diverse audience. From pretty conservative to folks who are more progressive in faith like me and everywhere in between. What I love about Karen's scholarship is that she demonstrates how you can be someone who approaches scripture with a more conservative lens and be affirming of same-sex relationships. But no matter where you fall on the faith spectrum, I think you're going to learn a ton in this interview. All right, here's Karen talking about the deliberative process. In the, in the book of Deuteronomy, we see that the author of Deuteronomy is reading and engaging with what had been said in Exodus and the author updates the slavery law. And he updates it such that he now overturns the uh, prohibition in Exodus about freeing female slave. And he now says the female slave shall also go free at, after six years along with the male slave. And the, the point of both of these slavery texts the point of both of these slavery texts is about slave rights, how you're supposed to treat your slave. So you can't just keep a male slave indefinitely. The, the, the initial slavery law was maybe concerned that the female, if she went free, 
wouldn't have the resources to survive. Um, but in Deuteronomy, we see that the uh, author is saying, not only do you have to free both of them, but you need to provide for them. You need to give them provision so that they can start their life over again. It's a more pro- progressive slave rights law. And so we see that deliberative process happening where a law is changed to make it more pro- uh, progressive, specifically in relation to human need. Um, human need being a thing that we see in other uh, deliberative processes that happen in um, in the scriptural text. So we also see a deliberative process around how Gentiles should be incorporated into the faith of Christ uh, and being Christ followers. Gentiles were always included. This was not a new thing. In the, in the Old Testament time, foreigners could come and be incorporated. They just had to begin following the Israelite practices and laws. So we see Rahab, who was a Canaanite, becomes enfolded into the Israelite community. She becomes essentially an Israelite and is, you know, uh, King David comes from her line. So the idea of Gentile inclusion was not a new Christian thing. It was It was always a possibility within the Jewish community that Gentile could be included. What was radically different is now there was a change about the way Gentiles could be included into the faith. And the church deliberated and decided that Gentiles would not have to follow the same Mosaic laws. They would only have to refrain from a few things such as not eating animals that had been strangled or consuming blood, um, that sort of thing. So we see deliberation happening by the biblical authors who are writing scripture. And we also see deliberation being described. So the experience of the early church leaders coming together and wrestling with something that hasn't been articulated in scripture previously. Yeah. And even at times um, in that wrestling with wasn't, hasn't been articulated uh, a, a human need that hasn't been articulated, actually coming to see the law itself a bit, a bit differently. Is that what you're saying? Um, yeah, I think it, it's a new situation that may come up that need to be worked out. So with the uh, the Deuteronomist who is paying attention to slave rights, it, it, I don't know that it was so much of a new situation per se as much as a new awareness, a new awareness and appreciation of, you know, what we can do better to care for and to, to care for slaves. And, and, and so that wasn't necessarily a new situation. It was a new awareness that we can do better. We can do even more with the original intent. We can go beyond the original intent to enhance it, uh, which was the goal of that was to protect slave rights. So how can we do that even more? Let's enhance it. And then you have situations that are new. So that's what we see with 
um, the advent of Christianity and what did it mean to follow the Messiah, Jesus, and concepts around the law shifting and affecting the way uh, Gentile would be included. Um, we see this also with Paul when he is wrestling with divorce. He had a new situation come up where people who were converting to Christianity were married to non-believers. Christianity is beginning to spread. You're having people converting, and all of a sudden you have these mixed faith marriages, and that is creating conflict and, in some cases, uh, a spouse abandoning the Christian uh, spouse. Uh, and so, okay, we have this new situation. How are we going to handle this? And Paul goes beyond what Jesus said to say, okay, you know what? There's another situation here where not just infidelity can release somebody from marriage, but if abandonment can release somebody. So that would be another example of where a new situation arises involving human need and how do we best care for uh, people in a difficult marital situation or how do we best care for slaves? Yeah, you've brought up now several excellent examples of us being able to observe this actually happening in scripture. I'm imagining that for a lot of folks, this just sounds like, why can't we just now change everything because we don't like it? Like, why can't we just say, oh, that doesn't really suit the way I want to live my life. That doesn't really suit, you know, the way I feel like doing things. You know, I just, I want to do what I feel like. So, hey, deliberative process in scripture. And now um, I can pretty much do what I want, whatever feels right to me. Right. And I think the same people who would have that concern, and that's certainly some, a concern that I've had in the past too, or I, I mean, I certainly don't want to read scripture that way where anything goes. So, um, but there's a certain subjectivity to what Paul did or what the early church leader did as they were wrestling with Gentile inclusion. There was a, a sense of stepping out so I don't, I, I would, I guess I would ask those same individuals um, whether there's not just some discomfort with the idea of subjectivity in general. Um, you know, if there's too much of a reliance on, I, I can only do what's on the printed page. But obviously there are guardrails and there are parameters. It's not you can just interpret scripture however you want to. It's looking at how did the biblical authors engage the deliberative process and in what context? And so human need would be one. You know, the original slavery law was concerned for slave rights. So how can we do this even better? How can we care for slaves even better? Or with Paul and divorce, how, how do we care for the individuals in a really tragic difficult situation. So human need, where there's some kind of difficulty, would be one guardrail for, uh, it's not a deliberative process that is self-centered and pleasure-focused. It's a deliberative process based on what, on, on what is, um, 
providing well-being and care for people. It must then become extremely important to focus on the moral intent and the underlying ethical values that kind of um, run through scripture. Yeah. And, and this is not a foreign concept to conservative Christians. Conservative Christians already engage in this deliberative process. Uh, they just don't apply it to uh, same-sex relationships, I think, because gay people are such a, a small percentage of people. And so where the deliberative process happens is with situations that are more common to the main congregation for most parishioners. So, for example, on divorce, the PCA, which is a very conservative evangelical denomination, uh, engaged in a deliberative process around divorce in the situation of domestic violence. And they looked at, they went back in their tradition and history and looking at what Puritans had said on the issue and extrapolated from scripture that violence is essentially equivalent to abandonment because violence causes a split. You can't you can't remain in a, a context where there's violence happening. And so it forces a separation. And it essentially creates the same situation that abandonment does. And so from that deliberative process, the PCA says that it is lawful for a woman to divorce and remarry if she was in a marriage where there was unrepentant, persistent, domestic violence. There's nothing in scripture that gives permission for divorce in the case of domestic violence, but like Paul deliberated on a situation that was not addressed, the PCA said, you know what, scripture doesn't address every possible situation. So in in cases where scripture is not clearly articulating something, we need to decide how are we going to respond to the problem of domestic violence. I think one of the interesting things about that point that you bring up about domestic violence as well is there's no way that there wasn't a very significant amount of domestic violence happening throughout the scriptures. Like there's no doubt many of the systems were very patriarchal. There was no recourse for a woman who was being abused. There was nothing that she could do. And the men had no accountability and quite a bit of power for pretty much every you know, for, for the vast majority, if not all of the scriptures. So there's no way domestic violence wasn't happening. And yet it wasn't mentioned as a moral issue in scripture. And so as the PCA comes, comes back, they're not looking at a new situation. They're looking at what you were saying, a new awareness. A new awareness, exactly. Yeah. I, I think that's a significant distinction. I really appreciate you making it. And I, I think this gets at kind of... um a question that a lot of people have as well is they say, what about texts where there isn't a deliberative process? Like when it comes to an issue like homosexuality, like what about texts when there is no deliberative process? How do we, how do we justify deliberating on a topic like that? 
Yeah, good question. Let me, there are two parts to what you're asking, I think. So let me answer first, what do we do about the fact that we're not authors of scripture? And so we see them engaging in a a deliberative process. Uh, Does that apply to us also? I just want to point out that the people who were debating about the Gentile inclusion and working that out, not all of the participants were writers of scripture, um, and yet they were part of that process. But there's a really good example in Mark 2, 25 to 26, where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees had been upset that the disciples were plucking grain on the Sabbath to eat because they were hungry. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, have you not read? So he's appealing to their hermeneutics. He's appealing to the fact that they're reading scripture. He knows that they've read this particular text that he's about to refer to in the Old Testament regarding King David. He says, haven't you read about King David who ate the forbidden holy bread that he was not permitted to eat, he and his men, because they were hungry. He's saying to these Pharisees who were not biblical authors and wouldn't become biblical authors, he's saying to them, look, this is how you do hermeneutics. This is how you interpret the text. This is how you use it and apply it. So he's teaching them to be readers and appliers to the text. And in the process, he's teaching us. So Jesus is not just speaking to the Pharisees, but Jesus is speaking to us. As you're reading scripture, pay attention to these principles that are in it. And the principle is that, yeah, David broke the law. Jesus specifically said, yes, David broke the law. But you know what? He was hungry. The the fact that he was hungry was sufficient ground for for engaging in a deliberative process around that particular law. And he's just suggesting the same with the disciples. He's saying to the Pharisees, look, yeah, the scriptures say you're not supposed to glean on the, the Sabbath, but the disciples are hungry. And he says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The whole point of the, of the law not just the Sabbath law, but the whole point of all of the law is for the is for human benefit, to benefit the well-being of human beings. The law is not just some arbitrary thing that we're just supposed to blindly follow. The whole purpose of it is to give us some guidance for how to care well for each other. So that doesn't automatically mean hey, anything that we want is okay, there's still that process that has to take place and it's not a a light and easy process. So could you help us understand, um, I want to look at a couple verses in particular. Could you help us understand how you might apply that deliberative process to the text of Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13, where it says, a man shall not lie with man as a woman. Um, Both of those texts say more or less that that same thing. Could could you apply that deliberative process to those texts for us? Give us some ideas of what that might look like. Yeah, I think the first place to start with any text uh, is to just do basic sound exegesis. So it's looking at the literary context and the historical context. So we notice right away 
that in that passage, it's referring to male-male sexual relations. It's not referring to female. There's no no prohibition against uh, female same-sex relations in the Old Testament. So my seminary professor on that point would say a lot of the laws were presented as if to the male, but it was um, like aphoristic. It was a saying. So referring to a man could also refer out to a woman as well uh, by implication, like the Ten Commandments were addressed to the masculine. Right. But it was meant to be. Right. I think that that's true. That's true. There's a couple of things. Uh, Just because it's addressed to the male doesn't mean that the laws were equivalent for men and women. Often women are treated differently under law than male. So we shouldn't automatically assume that it being directed to males automatically applies to females. I think we have to look at context. But the reason that I don't think that this is purely a, a patrocentric articulation here is because in this very same passage, it does single out women. It specifically says women should not engage in bestiality. Women should not lie with a man, uh, with an animal. Um, and so the fact that women are singled out specifically for bestiality right after the statement about same-sex relation is very peculiar. So why are women singled out there, but they're not mentioned? And I personally think that it's because in the Israelite mind, sex involved penetration. And hypothetically, in bestiality, in their imagination, could possibly involve penetration. But female-female relations, how could that actually be sex? There's some rabbinic interpretations that coincide perfectly with what you're saying right now. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, yeah, in the uh, rabbinic tradition, a woman who engages in same-sex relations is still considered a virgin. It was considered to be obscene, but she was still considered to be a virgin. And so she could still marry a priest as a result, but because priests were not supposed to marry someone who wasn't a virgin. So you see within, there's some precedence in Jewish thought that female, female sex is not really sex. And I think that's what we see in the Israelite passage in, uh, in Leviticus as well, which is why women are mentioned for bestiality, but they're not mentioned for same-sex relations. And so... Thank you. Thank you for going down that rabbit hole with me. So (laughs) now let's get on to the rest of what you wanted to mention about Leviticus 18 and 20. Yeah, so so there's context, and so we have to notice, huh, that's interesting that it's directed primarily toward men. What did that tell us about how they understood sex and and the reason for the law, which is what we're getting at, right? We're trying to figure out what is the reason for why this law is there in the first place. And they're particularly preoccupied with what men are doing. And in that culture, procreation was incredibly important. You're supposed to be fruitful and multiply and not engage in any kind of activity that would uh, be non-procreative. 
in that culture, men were considered to be the force for procreation. Women were basically understood to be a receptacle. So the the uh, the procreative potential resided in male ejaculation. And so there's a fixation on men and what men are doing with their bodies, particularly because this law probably has something to do with evaluation of procreation, also probably gender. So don't lie with a man as with a woman. Don't uh, make yourself like a woman in a, in a patrocentric culture where male dominance is part of what it means for men to be men. Becoming like a woman was considered to be degrading. So you have issues of, of, of patriarchal gender norms. Another thing I would notice literarily in this passage is that it's referring to what the nations do. It's not saying some of you are doing this and you need to stop. It's saying don't do what the nations do, which then makes us ask, okay, what are they envisioning here? What are the nations doing? And Robert Gagnon, who is one of the most prolific traditionalist scholars, in his understanding, he thinks that it was referring to temple prostitution. And if that were the case, obviously temple prostitution is something different than what we're talking about now, which is consensual, uh, monogamous, covenanted uh, relationships. Yeah, and it's interesting that you bring up Robert Gagnon because in his book, when he talks about temple prostitution, he makes an assumption that I think um, underlies maybe a lack of understanding about why this question is being asked now in the first place. Because he says, well, gay people in that culture would have wanted to be temple prostitutes. He says that in his book. Yeah, I, I mean, I recall reading that book as I was in the process myself of trying to understand the theology and feeling like there was a fundamental misunderstanding here of what it meant to be gay or bisexual because it's not about just wanting as much sex as you could get with the same gender. It's, a, it's about seeking and desiring a deep connection and falling in love with the same gender. We can also look at Jewish interpretation. So Philo, who lived, who was a Jewish theologian in the first century, who overlapped a little bit with Paul the Apostle, when he reads homoerotic texts in the Old Testament, he tends to understand them as pederastic. He's interpreting the text within his Greco-Roman context, where homoerotic activity manifested primarily as pederasty. Uh, so again, um, we're not talking about pederasty or prostitution. We're talking about covenanted familial relationships. This does raise a question for me as, as we're talking and we're, we're talking about how, you know, it's an issue sometimes with people who have traditional theology of maybe not understanding what the question is or maybe making some false assumptions about who lesbian, gay, bisexual people are or what we want. 
what about what about us? Like, are we maybe making a false assumption here in this text? If we're going to engage in a deliberative process, how do we know that we're not making false assumptions based on what we want? And like, how do you know Leviticus eighteen twenty two and twenty thirteen aren't referring to Genesis and just trying to restore God's good creation in Genesis? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that goes back to the point of. It's really, really poor exegesis to proof text verses and just pull them out of the canonical context of the Bible as a whole. We want to look at what is happening across scripture as a whole, which is what we see with the deliberative process. When we look at, you know, how is law being utilized and what is the law for? Uh, we begin to see some broader pictures of, of what it means to read mandates in scripture properly and correctly. And so we're not going to just, to answer this question about same-sex relationship, we're not going to just pluck out these two verses from Leviticus and try to create a whole theology about it. We're going to be looking at, okay, what does scripture as a whole say? And um, so I would say that there's a couple of things. I want to go back to one thing you asked about, which was, you know, what if, what if there's something hasn't been deliberated on in Scripture? Um, you know, maybe there's some tensions in Scripture around divorce. You know, it was allowed with infidelity, so maybe that leaves some room for allowing a deliberative process. But, you know, some would say, but we don't see this tension around same-sex relationships. And I would disagree with that. I think we do see tension. We see tension on the bigger picture of sexual ethics broadly. So when we read Paul, his concern is that people not engage in promiscuity, that we're not just that we're not just giving in to whatever our desires are to just feed uh, a hunger and appetite for pleasure. He's saying that sex is best within a particular context, that sex needs to be um, contained, to be healthy. And so that is why he says in 1 Corinthians 7, 9, if you can't, if, if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. He doesn't make an assumption that they should just pray harder or be, uh, have, you know, engage in and more spiritual disciplines or whatever, he's, he's acknowledging, you know what? The sex drive is very powerful and not everyone is going to be able to pull off a lifelong celibacy. And so there's a context for sex and how it's contained, and that is in marriage. So the tension then that we see in scripture that I think opens the door for deliberative process around same-sex relationship, we see this tension between Paul's instruction that if someone cannot maintain celibacy, they need to marry, and then this prohibition around same-sex relations. So you have a competing ethic here. There's a tension there that has to get resolved, and that's where the deliberative process comes in, and we say, Okay, what's the intent here? The intent here is to have that our sexuality be contained in a covenanted relationship that we're not just indiscriminately having sex with whoever. And so we can take those principles then and apply them 
to people who are gay, uh, you know, what is going to help them to healthily live out uh, their sexuality. And in regard to the whole idea of male-female complementarity, which is what a lot of traditional traditionalists would appoint to, for example, Genesis, Genesis doesn't um, actually address the issue of sexual minorities. It doesn't address intersex people. It does not address people who are, are gay. And it wasn't intended to do that. And I think it's a false reading of scripture to make it say more than it's actually saying. So I'm not negating the fact that male-female complementarity and procreation and all that is good. Of course it's good. And we also have people who are not heterosexual. We also have the sexual minorities. And so how do they fit into the, uh, the biblical principles? So this is not, this is about allowing sexual minority to participate in big biblical principles, allowing sexual minorities to participate in the good of covenant and the good of family. And so it's not about disregarding family or, or trying to bring down male and female as being good. It's we have people that don't, that are, don't fit that box. And so how do we incorporate them the best that we can? A huge thanks to Karen Keene for joining us on this episode. You can learn more about her work at karenkeene.com. We've got the link in the show notes. So one final question for you to consider as we close. Do you ever come across verses in the Bible that are difficult to deal with? Perhaps about slavery, women, or war? What principles do you use to deliberate on those verses? Thanks so much for listening. Hey, if you aren't already, you should follow us on Instagram. That's where all the fun is happening. We are at Open Bible Pod on there. If you're interested in supporting our work financially, check out our website, openbiblepodcast.com. Thanks again for listening. Can't wait to talk to you soon.